Hey there, e-commerce enthusiasts. Let me tell you about a game changer in shipping, ShipStation. It's the ultimate platform for simplifying your shipping process. With ShipStation, you can easily import, manage, and ship your orders in no time. It integrates seamlessly with your favorite e-commerce platforms and carriers, ensuring a smooth workflow. Gain valuable insights with their powerful analytics and reporting tools. Say goodbye to shipping headaches. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash ship and level up your shipping game today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode. I'm Eric Waltikens. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, get us started on our topic for the day. All right. We're now in the 1920s. Woo! <laughs> yes, woo. <laughs> uh, we start out with the death of Vito Guadalabene, the first mob boss in Milwaukee. He dies of old age from a kidney disorder. So really uneventful death. Uneventful death, but just letting you know, we're starting out the 20s, Vito is gone. Giovanni Battista Guadalabene, known as Pete. Pete is his son. Uh, he quickly asserts himself as the capable leader in his own right. Uh, he had started out kind of known for like this weird sideshow act he did. <laughs> uh, he was the manager of a man named John Giagianti, and I may be saying that terribly wrong. John Giagianti was 165 pounds, so not super big, not super small. And he, be, he claimed that he was able to entertain an audience by eating the following. <laughs> 16 pounds of spaghetti, 2 pounds of beef steak, one loaf of bread, one gallon of wine, and the necessary sides of olives and radishes. Now that's just disgusting. <laughs> well, people paid to see this. <laughs> so originally, that's what uh, what Pete Guadalabene did, was he managed this guy's career of eating this stuff. But following the passing of Vito, Pete steps up, and he sort of strengthens his place in the business, in the family business. Uh, he brings in his brother, Angelo. Uh, the Aiellos, one of whom is his brother-in-law, and another brother-in-law named Matt Del Sano. During the day, he looked like a legitimate businessman because he had the Monte Carlo nightclub on Detroit streets, so or right in the middle of the Third Ward. So is this guy, he ne- was not part of the mafia prior to no, becoming... No, he, he was definitely in it, but like he was just kind of like, you know, the guy's son. Okay. So he really didn't have to do any work, he just got to be... Hey, I'm part of the mafia, but I'm just collecting money because my dad's in charge of it. Perhaps, yeah. So the Monte Carlo was a popular destination. Uh, Keep in mind, this is Prohibition. They have extravagant shows and an extensive liquor selection. (sighs) The club was frequently listed among the most flagrant violators of the Prohibition law. On several occasions, Prohibition agents would raid it. But they never convinced the authorities to put a padlock and shut the place down, at least not up to this point. There was very little quiet between Vito's passing and the next eruption of violence. Peter Canella was shot at his home on the evening of February 16, 1921, 10 days after Vito dies. He was a foreman for the railroad shops. The forty-five bullet came in through the window and lodged in his neck. Nearby were his wife and infant daughter. Detective Louis Deaton was nearby, not in the house, in the neighborhood, and he arrived quickly to trace the shot. Canella actually survived thanks to immediate care, but the staff at the hospital thought they might have to amputate his arm. 
I don't know how getting shot in the neck makes you have to get your arm amputated, but something happened. And if we got a doctor out there, write us an email. Let us know how that actually happens. Yeah. Police suspected the shooting was related to the death of Guadalavene, speculating that there may now be a power struggle for influence in the Italian community. I actually have no evidence whatsoever that Peter Canella has anything to do with anything. This was just sort of things that the police would tell the news. The detective on the scene, Detective Louis Deaton, I love this guy. He is one of my favorite characters. Uh, he was born in France, but he was born on the German border. Because he was born on the French-German border, he could speak English, French, German, and Italian. Wow. Yes. He studied sociology at the University of Minnesota. He achieved a reputation as a painter and music lover. And he was a skilled card player. He was the president of the North American Scat League. And Scat used to be this really popular card game uh, the Germans would play. I don't think anybody plays it anymore, so I'm not even going to try to describe it. At one point, Deaton toured Europe by bicycle with the future governor of Minnesota. So this guy, this guy's a, as far as police go, this guy's an interesting character. He's also extremely useful because of the fact that he can speak Italian. After this point, nobody could. Police busted up a lottery in April run by Matt Del Sano and the Guadalabene brothers. They were raffling off a 391-acre farm valued at $36,000, which is $468,000 today, near Arena, Wisconsin. Their brother, Another brother-in-law, Isidore Aiello, had been dairy farming in an attempt to produce Romano cheese. If the farm was turned down by the lottery winner, they could claim $15,000 in cash instead. Posters were displayed in Bayview and the Third Ward. Just a, a note there, the Third Ward is where most of the Sicilians settled. Bayview is where other Italians who are not Sicilian, that's where they settled, was in Bayview. Where is Bayview? Uh, south of the Third Ward. So it's just like a name for another neighborhood? In yeah, it's another, na- yeah, it's another, you don't know Bayview? No, I've never heard that, actually. Oh, yeah, it's a neighborhood. Uh, it's the south side of town. It's along, like, the Kinnikinick River. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. The tickets were to attend a picnic at the farm in the coming summer where the farm would be given away. They said, well, this is just like a lottery that the Elks Club did the previous year when they gave away their clubhouse. Over $20,000 worth of tickets were found at August Chiaverati's Tavern. The Guadalupe's were told by the DA to refund all the money. DA said the difference between this and what the Elks were doing is the Elks were auctioning off for charity, not for their personal gain. Whereas here, the idea is they'd sell enough tickets that they'd sell up the farm and still make a profit on top of it. Interesting note there that Agashia Varadi, the the tavern owner who uh, has these $20,000 worth of tickets, which is an insane amount of money in those days. Mm -hmm. This is the same tavern that the anarchists would hang out at. So these are the guys that got suspected of like the police station bomb. And then August Chiaverati's son, later also named August Chiaverati, <laughs> is, is, uh, gets mixed up with the mob and he gets uh, involved in various investments and other things. So maybe he'll come up at a later time. Detective Deaton was at Vitucci's Tavern when he heard four gunshots. Running out the door, he found garbage collector John Vecciano with a still-smoking forty-five in his hand. Vecciano would not say why he had just fired his gun. He was arrested, and he pleaded with them, saying, No, 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 I've got a wife and seven children. We're back on the garbage collectors again. Back on the garbage collectors, yeah. 
Man, they really had a hold on that industry, man. They sure did. <laughs> now, unknown to Vacciano, Deaton, as I said, spoke Italian. So he could understand what was being said between the suspect and his wife. He actually talked to his wife about killing a junk dealer named Nunzio Crispo back in New Jersey. Why this would come <laughs> to the conversation, I don't know. The men had gotten into a fight at an ice cream parlor, and then Vacciano put two bullets into the man's stomach, point blank, in front of six witnesses, including that man's daughter. Based on Deaton's word, extradition followed. Vacciano claimed self-defense, but this was refuted, and he was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life in prison. He got out after only 18 years. His freedom was brief, as he soon attacked his mistress with a knife and was again sent back to prison. None of this explains why he had fired his gun in Milwaukee. <laughs> so he gets he gets arrested for that, but completely taken in for an unrelated thing in another state. <laughs> Very strange uh, series of events. Crime, particularly murder, was actually lower in Milwaukee during these years than it was south of the border in Chicago. A 1926 study from sociologist John Landesco showed a possible reason that gang murder in Milwaukee might be less common than it was in Chicago. Uh, number one obvious reason is the population difference. Beyond that, Milwaukee actually enforced its laws and was less susceptible to corruption. There were far fewer people who were caught for corruption, uh, like the police and judges and whatnot in Milwaukee. Now, here's an interesting thing. So, 48% of all felony charges were dropped at preliminary hearings in Chicago. So, if you are arrested for a felony, murder, grand theft, whatever, when you should have your first day in court, you've got like a 50-50 chance they're sending you home. Wow. So, that's already, your odds are pretty decent. Milwaukee, on the other hand, gets sent home only 17% of the time. So pretty likely you were going to go to trial. 36% of felony cases ended in conviction in Milwaukee, which actually still means you got a two-thirds chance of walking. Only 15% of Chicago cases ended in conviction, which means you've got a 85% chance of not going to prison. So do you think that, is this an indication that possibly the mafia had a much tighter hold on the city of Chicago's government? structure like the courts and things like that than they did in milwaukee oh there's no doubt of that okay absolutely no doubt of that no they, we Did don't you, see much of that at all in milwaukee but in chicago we know all kinds of high-ranking police and judges and uh city politicians who were are paid off it's it's not really a secret and do you think that's was was chicago's government just that more more corrupt or was it just that the Chicago Mafia had that much more power than the Milwaukee that's Mafia? A, that's a great question. And I'm actually going to say that it's that was Chicago more than it was the mob. The mob benefited, obviously. But, but it's interesting to note that before the mob really took off, there was a part of town in Chicago called the Levee. And the Levee had two aldermen. And... The way Chicago is set up, or at least traditionally, I don't know about today, but traditionally it's set up, aldermen have very, very high powers. They're like mini mayors. So in the Levy district, I mean, prostitution was running openly because these two guys were like, well, whatever, <laughs> you know, 
the mayor had nothing to do with it. So these guys like could decide what the local police wouldn't want enforce. So before the mob ever took over, I mean, this was the part of town where if you wanted uh, prostitution, illegal drinking, narcotics, whatever, this is where you went. And everybody knew it. Like it wasn't, again, it's not a secret. The corruption existed in Chicago government long before the mafia even existed in Chicago. Absolutely. Interesting. All right. And along with this study, they uh, tested the murder rates. And we found that Chicago's murder rates at this time were approximately five times higher than they were in Milwaukee. Milwaukee was about the same level as Newark, New Jersey, for whatever that's worth. (laughs) Um, And it was actually deadlier in Milwaukee than it was in London or any city in Germany. Wow. But no place anywhere in the world had a murder rate as high as Chicago. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So the 1920s, bad times. One of the most fascinating moments in Milwaukee Mafia history came in 1926. There was a meeting held between Al Capone and Joe Aiello, who was like the rival leader in Chicago, and he's allegedly related to the Aiellos in Milwaukee. I haven't actually been able to make that connection, but they always claimed they were related. The meeting was held in Pewaukee, which is just west of Milwaukee, at the home of a man named either Ed Edwards or Will Williams. There's some dispute on this. <laughs> he was a piano player at the Monte Carlo. So we know that Guadalbene was, and the Milwaukee mob were aligned with the Aiello faction um, because they had these relatives and whatnot. There was a discussion to settle turf disputes and end the ongoing gang war in Chicago. The meeting was not successful. And it ended with everybody throwing fruit and vegetables at each other before they all went home. (laughs) Why would they have this meeting in Pewaukee to settle a a dispute in Chicago? Neutral ground. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's if you do it in Chicago, you know someone's going to be waiting outside to shoot you after the meeting or something. Yeah, but then at the same time... I mean, the Milwaukee Mafia had more of a tie to the non-Capone group yep, yep. than... So I, I still don't see it as truly neutral ground. It's probably more neutral, mm-hmm. but but I guess maybe they just... This was the best agreement they could come to. Right. You know, that that worked for both sides. And, and I think that's why it's at this guy's house, this piano player's house, because they're not going to... They're not going to kill anybody in this guy's house. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they could, I wish but I they could, but they could drive was. up the road and shoot them. Well, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, they could, they could. <laughs> uh, in case you don't already know how this story ends, within a few years, uh, Capone does end up kind of killing them all anyway. <laughs> so, so for for now, it's okay. But, but uh, obviously, Capone does win in Chicago. The Monte Carlo was not the only entertainment venue owned by the Guadalabene family. Angelo Guadalabene, Pete's brother had the Riviera Resort near Delafield, which is also west of Milwaukee, until that burned down in 1926. Eleven employees were sleeping on the second floor at the time and had to escape through the window in their pajamas. A woman broke her leg jumping from the roof. Two waiters were also injured. The fire department responded too late. That's really all I know about that place is that it burned down. (laughs) Eventually, the Monte Carlo Club had its luck run out. Pete Guadalabene was arrested on October 15, 1926 for liquor violations after Prohibition agents turned in evidence that they had gathered. The agents had been 
from out of the area. They were not local prohibition agents because at this point, there was what was called a, quote, grapevine telegraph. And anybody who was an undercover agent in Milwaukee, everybody knew who that was. So oh. so you'd say, undercover agent on his way, <laughs> and you'd, you'd, you know, you'd hide your booze. So they had to bring in guys from out of state. And as soon as they did that, it was all over. Also arrested for possession of alcohol was Pete's brother, Angelo, who was, had the sale of liquor, and he maintained a nuisance, which is, sounds worse than it is. Just means it's got this, you know, bar. The newspapers believe this was just the beginning by the feds to dry up the Third Ward, which was known for ignoring the liquor laws, striking out its most prominent members first, rather than those who would patronize the business or smaller people. Going after the Guadalabenes first was like, we mean business. The Guadalabene brothers had their bond posted by fruit dealers Frank Spicoza and Lawrence Scarpacci, um, who, th- those names mean nothing to me. I just throw that out there because I don't know why these guys are the guys paying to get them out of jail. And I think that'd be interesting to know why, but I don't know why. It is interesting. All right. So the defense attorneys asked for a continuance. They said, you know, let's push this trial off for a while. But eventually it was dropped when the Guadalabenes agreed that they could padlock the Monte Carlo Club in exchange for dropping the charges. So the Monte Carlo was closed. Tony Sherba was arrested in January 1927 after Prohibition agents found a large still on Jefferson Street. Uh, Prohibition administrator Frank Cunningham, he's kind of like the top guy, he vowed to use Sherba as a test case, pursuing charges under the tax laws instead of the liquor laws. This would result in more jail time and larger fines. He proudly, the uh, prohibition agent, proudly boasted to the press that he had done this in St. Louis before he was transferred to Milwaukee and he'd been very successful. The prosecutor asked for a steep bond saying, I have information that this man, his accomplices, would be glad to have him leave town. In fact, he may have been right. Tony Sherba's bond was posted by Pete Guardalabene. Was Sherba one of Guardalabene's suppliers? I don't know. Uh, They obviously had a connection because of the bail money, but I don't know beyond that what their connection really was. Again, love to know, but it's also piecemeal of what you can and can't right. find out. It's one of those things that we will never know. Yeah. Nobody out pro- oh, there probably knows that's still living. So adding insult to injury after losing the Monte Carlo, the government now accused Pete Guadalabene of being the hidden owner of the Cauldron Club, another nightlife establishment. The owner on paper, a man named Robert Bradley, was released by prosecutors after he said, no, 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 I just signed the papers. The actual man running things is Guadalabene. <laughs> Shame on this guy for turning him in. A prohibition agent testified that he went to this club, the Cauldron Club, with another agent and two women. Well, at first they were unable to get in. Once the women were recognized by the doorman, they were permitted to enter and were personally seated by Guadalabene himself. They placed an order for beer and cocktails without any trouble. At a nearby table, they saw a doctor and three of his guests also drinking. After the agents finished their drinks, they went upstairs to a second bar where they were served by Frank Bergerino. And Frank Bergerino, I mentioned because he's the son of Joseph Bergerino, who in a much earlier episode had his house bombed. So you probably don't remember at this point, but again, all these connections between people. Defense attorneys said the Guadalabene had nothing to do with this place, regardless of what the agents claimed that they saw. Prohibition agents came even harder still. This time they sent in the, quote, flying squadron out of Chicago, a group of agents that were very serious in their work, much more serious than the Milwaukee agents were. 
They raided 11 establishments and rounded up and arrested proprietors, dancers, customers, everybody. Uh, those arrested included Frank Vitucci, the son of Mike Vitucci. Also caught up in the raid was Alioto Gardens, which was run by John Alioto, a future mob boss himself. Alioto was the licensee, and his bartender Cosmo De Selvo was also arrested, along with Cosmo's father, Benedetto, who was named as the proprietor. Both De Selvos, Cosmo and Benedetto, were members of the mob, as was another brother, Andrew in Racine, who had previously served time in Washington for robbery. And Andrew in Racine eventually becomes the godfather of Frank Balistrieri, the mob boss in Milwaukee. So they're all names that it's going to get very confusing, but but it's <laughs> all these people link together. Within the week, the prosecutors moved to have six places padlocked, including Mike Vitucci's Tavern uh, and the Venice Gardens. The gardens had previously been padlocked when it was called Liberty Cafe, but they changed names and owners, only to be padlocked again. Other places padlocked in the Third Ward were the Hollywood Cafe, the Northwestern Gardens, the Aberdeen Cafe, and a quote-unquote soda parlor on Detroit Street. So, yeah, there's there's bars running openly all over the neighborhood. And so you said just a little bit ago that they would get shut down and they would open them back up under different names and attempt to just do the same thing? Yeah, if you, if you, you know, because it would be licensed to one person. You get somebody else to take the liquor license and you change the name so now you're a different business. You can you know, hire back the same staff and just start right back up. And it just doesn't seem very smart to do it in the same exact building. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. But I mean, from a legal standpoint, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's maybe, no. It maybe isn't smart, but it, but it's a good way to get around it. Yeah. Guadalabene was freed. The commissioner, the man who could have held him over for trial, said... He may be guilty, but all the evidence that has been introduced is consistent with his innocence. Now, notorious nightlife figure Kitty Williams, who this is a throwback to much earlier. I remember Kitty Williams. Okay. Kitty Williams is now 70 years old. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) She testified that she owned the building and leased the premises to a man named Edward Grabenheimer, not Guadalabene. Although Guadalabene had indeed vouched for Grabenheimer, the press noted her style. Even in her old age, she had a white silk dress, <laughs> a red necktie, and a long white plume coming out of her hat. Kitty also testified that Guadalabene actually paid a couple months' rent, but he was just backing Grabenheimer when the money was tight. He wasn't an owner or anything like that. I don't know, it sounds pretty suspicious to me, but... Yeah, I mean, maybe he wasn't an official owner, but obviously he had his hands pretty deep into this place. Yeah. So it's funny, like, the the defense attorney denies, like, oh, you thought that he served you alcohol when you guys stopped into the club. No, 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 you were seeing things. (laughs) But they'll freely admit that he's paying this other guy to rent the place. (laughs) Throughout all their troubles, the Guadalabenes actually maintained an air of respect in the community. Pete Guadalabene was elected the president of the Madonna del Lume Society for the sixth consecutive time in 1929. His father, Vito, had founded the society way back in 1909, and all 146 of its members were from Santa Flavia. This was a religious society. It was close with the church, and this 
I don't know much about this sort of thing, but apparently Madonna del Loom was like the patron saint of this city. So they were all members of this club. Besides the fact that the two Guadalupeans were important, the other directors are names that don't really jump out to me. Uh, there's nobody really worthy of note, except one, a man named Mario Migna, who will come up later on as an attorney and uh, a child trafficker. So, oh. he, so he's fun. So yeah, we haven't talked about child trafficking yet. <laughs> oh wow, we got that episode to look yeah, forward oof. to. Huh? <laughs> yeah. When is that? Nineteen thirty-five. It's in the thirties. So oh. yeah, it's coming up. The overlap between the Madonna del Loom Society and mafia membership in Milwaukee is interesting and worth clarifying. Just so I'm very clear with listeners about this, because most of the people in Milwaukee, the Sicilians in Milwaukee, were from Santa Flavia. It is natural that they would be members of the religious organization for that village. So, just so we're clear, the majority of the Milwaukee Mafia were probably members of this organization. However, the majority of the members of this religious organization were not Mafia members. Members, yes. Okay. It just happens to be that they're all... It's part of their culture, so Mafia members were going to end up in this group as well as everybody else that was from right. that place. So I always want to make that clear. Same same as like all all mafia members are Sicilian. Not all Sicilians <laughs> are mafia members. I'm very clear about that, that I don't mean to tarnish a whole ethnicity and this organization, even though um, it was run by the Guadalupe family early on, doesn't mean the organization itself was a bad one. Yeah, it was just founded by happened to be founded by them as part of their culture instead of also uh along with this pete guardalbene was a top person in the galileo galilei mutual aid society and we kind of touched on this an episode or two ago mutual aid societies were kind of like insurance agencies in their own way um if you got sick they'd help pay for things or if you uh couldn't afford your funeral they'd pitch in to help pay for it so they were just like little groups of people who were helping each other out this one is interesting more in the members than the religious society is. Besides Pete Guadalabene, other known members were Leonardo Lafredo, who at this point no one's going to remember, but he was involved in a murder early on. Um, Dominic Leone, who has come up multiple times now. Is that the Dominic Leone the priest or Dominic Leone not, one that I would believe priest. was killed? Okay, the, the one who was killed. Okay, Steve and Carmelo Zarconi, the counterfeiters. And, of course, Nick Marino, the Boston store shooter. So shooter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I feel like with that, though, mm-hmm. um, that's going to have – that particular group would have a lot of wealthy people. Uh-huh. And I'm going to guess that a lot of the wealthy people that were originally from – like, it was this kind of uh, an Italian-type group as well oh yeah no it's definitely like like they were helping other italians right right so i'm gonna think that at this point in time a lot of the really really rich italians happen to be part of the mafia and that's probably again this wasn't a mafia organization no not all members were mafia just a lot more were mafia because that's where a lot of the wealth was in the italian that could be that's actually that's a really good point you make there that could be yeah it just it strikes me just how many like with the religious organization, eh, everybody's in this. Mm-hmm. But this one, like, 
a lot of the leadership positions are names. I'm like, okay, this guy, this guy, this guy. It's kind of odd. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it's an interesting coincidence. Final point. Pete Guadalabene was also instrumental in setting up the very first Columbus Day celebration in Wisconsin in 1929. So he just did a lot of really yeah. big things, like big, just good things. Yeah. I mean, he set up a parade with music and a banquet. Um, assisting him, again, were future mob boss John Aliota, who we mentioned earlier. Um, the local uh, council ambassador guy, Angelo Sermonero, who's come up a couple times. And Joe Balistrieri, the father of future mob boss Frank Balistrieri. But again, this may be a coincidence just because these were wealthier guys. Mm-hmm. But interesting. And just to kind of throw that out there for people who don't know, um, now Columbus Day is kind of controversial. I mean, there's some people who think it should be removed or replaced because Columbus was kind of a jerk, uh, to put it mildly, Uh, (laughs) which is absolutely true. I mean, Columbus was a bad guy. But Columbus was a big deal to the early Italians who came to America because they needed a way to be seen as American by other people. So they latched on to Columbus because, well, he discovered America. Mm-hmm. So if you could say, well, look, this Italian guy discovered America. What's more American than that? Yeah. So they really pushed for these Columbus Day celebrations. And then, you know, eventually it becomes a, a holiday and everything. But but this was like a, a major political movement to get the Italian community seen as American and not just a bunch of foreigners who moved in. So today, when we think of Columbus Day, it's very different than the way they thought of it 100 years ago. It was a lot bigger of a deal back then. Well, that's and probably expe- true, too. Especially yeah. to the Italians. Yes. That's actually true. I don't know too many parades and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of another day. But, okay. but that's uh, just a broad overview of uh, Pete Guardo Bene in the 1920s. So, so we're going to get a lot of prohibition, I'm assuming, through this? Eh, you know, it's it's bound to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, I don't really have a lot of questions for you on this one. So okay. I guess we'll just wind her down and you can get throw out some contact information. Everybody out there kind of fill in the gaps of the questions I didn't ask. Yeah, please. Please do. Uh, you can find the website MilwaukeeMafia.com or email MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also told to remind you, since we've never actually said this on air before, Go to wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five star review. review. Oh and yeah, make, and make sure you you write something nice about us in the review. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know exactly how podcasting works, but apparently this this helps bump us up on on the search engines and things like that. So. Yes, it does. It does, and we've done a terrible job with keeping that up. <laughs> but you know what? We still got people listening to us. Still so, got um, people listening. But yeah, if you could do that, that's we're, we're free. We don't even have ads. So if, if if there's anything you can do to pay us back, that would be great. You hit the five-star review on there. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another episode. Have a good one. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey, listeners. Quick question. Are you tired of overpaying for your mobile plan? I've got the answer. Ting Mobile. Ting Mobile is 
all about flexibility and savings. You only pay for what you use, no crazy fees or overages. It's perfect for those who want control over their phone bill without sacrificing quality. Say goodbye to bloated phone bills. Go to milwaukeemafia.com slash ting. Ting mobile. Mobile that makes sense. 